right, we're back with another episode of The Goat Farm, Season 2, The Search for Cloud Native. In this episode, we're going to take a trip over to Copenhagen, Denmark for KubeCon Cloud Native Con EU 2018. For me, this will be the fourth edition of this conference that I've attended, and it's amazing to see this conference really start to grow. So the first edition I attended was in Seattle, uh, and there were around 1,200 attendees, and Berlin followed shortly thereafter with around 1,100 attendees. And just last December, there were 4,000 plus attendees at this conference in Austin, Texas. Well, Copenhagen didn't disappoint either. Uh, it gathered over another 4,000 plus attendees. And the growth in this conference and thus community is just really, really staggering. One particular highlight of the keynotes was that end user community growth as well. One measure of success that we look at uh, is the growth of the end user community. And if end users aren't involved, then the direction tends to be set by vendors and vendors will do what's in their best interest. And we've seen this before in other communities. So it's really good to see that the end user community in the cloud native uh, uh, computing foundation is growing really, really well. Another highlight of the keynotes for me was a talk by uh, Simon Wardley. Simon is best known for his work on mapping, uh, known as Wardley mapping. Uh, and for the layperson, this is an idea of creating maps to help drive strategy and direction. So this concept of mapping focuses on upcoming trends and helps to determine where trends tend to be in their life cycle. So is it a commodity or is it the next hot new thing? These are questions that mapping helps seek to answer. So I caught up with Simon outside the Bella Convention Center at KubeCon and we chatted about the general idea of mapping and the idea of organizational inertia. So I'm here with Simon Wardley uh, at KubeCon EU here in beautiful Copenhagen. Well, not too beautiful. It's been very windy, hasn't it, Simon? Oh, it has been windy. Yes, <laughs> yes. Uh, and Simon, you gave a talk uh, today on mapping. So why don't you yes. tell the listeners a little bit about what you talked about? So mapping. Um, I generally believe it's a, it's a pretty useful idea to understand your landscape before you take action. Um, so, for example, if you're in the middle of a military campaign or, or whether you're playing a game of paintball or you're a World of Warcraft player, it's a good idea to understand the landscape and where all the people are and what, where the components are. And that's the purpose of a map. Now, it, uh, I was running a company uh, many, many years ago, about 13 years ago, and I realized that I, my strategy, I was just making everything up as I went along. As, as we tend to do. As we tend to do. It was all, you know, uh, I went around recording actually other CEOs talking about strategy and created this list of what I call business level abstractions or, of a healthy strategy, or BLAS for short. And, 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 you know, there were things like digital business, uh, ecosystems, open source. Um, you hear it today. Right. You, you know, blockchain this, blockchain that, AI this, AI that. Anyway, so what I realized in, in this sea of sort of noise is, is that what I was missing was a map. Now, I sort of assumed everybody else in the world had maps. It was just me uh, because I hadn't done an MBA. And so I developed a way of mapping uh, the landscape. And it, any map has basically certain characteristics. It's visual, it's context-specific, it's the battle of hand. You have an anchor, so in a geographical map, that's the compass, right. this way is north. You have position of pieces, this is north, south, east, or west of this, and you have consistency of movement. And consistency of movement's important, because if I go, say, um, if, uh, um, if, if Scotland's north of England, and we'll say that, um, 
then um, if you head north from England and or you head south, say, from England and you come into Scotland, uh, that either tells you your map is wrong or your compass is wrong. <laughs> uh, one of the two. So I developed a way of mapping competitive environments, and that's what I used. And I used it at... Uh, um, for Tango and I used it at Canonical when we attacked the cloud space and uh, these days I do this with governments. Um, so what I was talking about uh, in my talk was all about maps and why they matter. So um, so give us a little context around, so this conference last year was a thousand people. Yeah. Uh, this year it's 4,000. Yes. Uh, similar growth trends that they saw in Austin as well in North America last December. Okay. Uh, like a four-time growth. Yeah. So, um, kind of what is the applicability in mapping to kind of what we all do as technology professionals and, wow. and kind of okay. so when it comes mapping to maps, out our world of what we need to pay attention to. Okay, so when it comes and to... And not just follow the hype, right? I understand. So when it comes to maps, um, well, you've got a number of different set of patterns. There are climactic patterns. These are things which happen regardless of what you do. So, for example, things will evolve through supply and demand competition. When you look at a map, uh, the, the sort of maps I create, you have an anchor, which is the user at the top, you have position described by a value chain, or a chain of needs, right. and you have movement described by uh, evolution access. So we start off with the genesis of the novel and new, custom-built examples, products, and then eventually commodity and, uh, and utility-like services. So one of the uh, basic economic patterns is everything will evolve with supply and demand. Right. As it evolves, its characteristics will change. That's a second pattern. Um, another one is we have inertia to the change. Um, another one is as things evolve, they will enable the higher order systems to appear. So, you know, we get standardized components, we build more complex machinery. Uh, we expand what's called the adjacent unexplored. Um, there's about 30 of these common economic patterns. Right. And they are useful for anticipation. So you have a map, you apply the patterns, you can have a discussion about how an industry is changing. Now there's another set of patterns called doctrine. These are ones you get to choose, but they're universally useful. So you should choose them all the time. And these are things like focusing on user needs, removing bias and duplication, uh, using small, thinking small as in knowing the details, mm -hmm. thinking small in terms of small team sizes. There's about 40 of those. And most companies are oblivious to any of this sort of stuff. And then finally, you have the gameplay. So these are ways of manipulating the market, and they're context-specific. So things like open source is great for accelerating the industrialization or turning something into more right. of a commodity. You can slow it down with uh, fear, uncertainty, and doubt if you've got inertia. Uh, you've got um, constraints you can use. There's about 70. Well, there are 70 public patterns I talk about. There's actually a lot more than 70, but I don't talk about that. So, so we'll say there's 70. <laughs> Um, and the thing is, when you map, uh, you, you map out environment, you anticipate where it's going to go, you apply your gameplay, and then you play the game. And then and later on, you come back and you look at what happened, and you can look at the map, and you can look at what happened compared to what I thought would happen. And so they are good tools for not only communication, but also learning, continuous learning of patterns. So now, I thought everybody was doing this. It took me six years to discover, no, people weren't mapping. So, like Ubuntu, we took the entire cloud market for, what was it, half a million, 18 months uh, in time. 
and, and because we were competing against others who really couldn't see the landscape. And, right. But it took me many years, because I'm a bit slow, it took me many, <laughs> many years to discover that other people weren't mapping. So, uh, last question. So you've been in the cloud world for Forever. a long time. Forever. <laughs> uh, so much so that you announced that you were going to retire from cloud. In 2010, I retired, right. yes. Uh, and it's still, eight years later, it's still I'm still getting going. dragged back. <laughs> getting drug, yeah. drugged back in. So, <laughs> drugged back in. I, I mean, <laughs> well, I mean, dragged, like... drugged, I guess, either way. Um, how do you, give me your feelings and thoughts on inertia. So inertia was really big of like, oh yes, like people having a really hard time of moving towards cloud. Do you feel like inertia has gotten better or the inertia okay, has just okay. shifted? So shifted. So um, when we when we looked at cloud, and cloud, by the way, was a dreadful name. Uh, it fundamentally it's a shift of computers a product, computers a utility. We're we're bad at naming things. Yeah, we're terrible. We we are really bad, and that created a, a change of practice because we went from our what's known as a high MTTR, high mean time to recovery environment. Right. I, when your product went bang, it would take you weeks or months to get a new one to a low MTTR environment, so it takes seconds to get a new one. So what we got is a whole different set of practices, so no longer capacity planning, scale up, uh, disaster recovery, it was all scale out distributed systems designed for failure, chaos engines, continuous deployment. Right. Because you could do continuous deployment if you weren't waiting for three months for the, uh, the, uh, the service to turn right, up. Exactly. So we got that was all bundled together and called DevOps. Now, of course, if we go up the stack and we look at the code execution layer, um, which started off being called framework as a service, then became platform as a service, then became function as a service. So we've gone fast, pass, pass. Um, fast. The original fast was 2006, 2007, I think it was. Um, but at the end of the day, what it means is a code execution environment. I write code, and it's shifting from a product stack like lamp.net to a much more utility like stack. So you've got things like Lambda, and you've got things like functional billing. So mm -hmm. when I write my application, which may contain 30 or 40 different functions, I can discover you know, where I'm actually spending all my money. Because in generally, I discovered that usually would be most of it went on one function that I'd really written badly. Right. And so in this new world, suddenly I've got monitoring by money, monitoring by capital flow, uh, I've got a refactoring has financial value, new investment, new business models become possible. And that co-evolution of practice um, is, is occurring right now. We don't have a name for it, mm -hmm. um, but we've given a name to the, the shift from code to code execution from product to utility. We've now decided to call it serverless because that's a dreadful name, <laughs> almost as bad as cloud. Okay. Now, as per normal, uh, as it was with cloud, you had huge amounts of inertia to both the change and the practice as well. Lots of people saying it's not going to happen, blah, it's not suitable for production environments. Go back to 2007, 2008, 2009, people were dismissing cloud, all that, and that's what's going on with serverless right now. Yeah, and uh, what I find interesting is, uh, as I've talked to colleagues, is the inertia seems to be getting less, and I think it's to your point of we've gotten comfortable with this idea of utility and utility compute and consuming compute that way. And so now you see, people are more comfortable with small changes. I'm deploying a function. I'm deploying it to a cloud provider. You say it's less. Because of that change of practice, you'll get this whole new tribe of serverless. Right. Uh, when they give themselves a sensible mean. And they're going to reject the DevOps world. Right. 
in the same way that DevOps rejected the ITIL world, because tribes form. Now, when you look at DevOps, and it's all about um, uh, user interaction, fast feedback, loops, automation, so, so was ITIL. Right. Um, but, you know, nonetheless, a tribe forms and always dismisses the past as some character, some false character of what it was. Right. And, of course, the past tribe always goes, and ITIL did at the time, oh, we'll adopt this DevOps practice. And, of course, the DevOps crowd go, no, no, no. Anyway, the same's going on with serverless. So yeah. you get the, the DevOps crowd going, yeah, it's all part of the same. We're about culture and blah, blah, blah. And the serverless crowd going, no, you're all about containers. You're all about low-level network stuff. So you're getting that natural tribal human nature yeah. split schism. Are we at a stage of an industry that's mature enough to evolve without having that sort of tribal schism? I don't believe so. Yeah, yeah, I, I and would And so agree the as well. inertia will not only come from people, you know, because of the change, but people have invested huge amounts into DevOps and into containers and into infrastructure, being told that actually oh, that world is changing. And so you'll get a new source of inertia. And in fact, some of the early adopters in the serverless world, you'll probably find are the laggards to the... Um, and they're jumping generations. They're jumping a generation. Yeah. Well, Simon, thanks for taking the time to talk Pleasure to us. Pleasure always. Absolute delight. Yes, thanks. What I particularly liked for my chat with Simon was this idea of inertia and how tribalism feeds this inertia. As, as Simon points out, we see this tribalism between uh, the ITIL world and DevOps, or at least we used to. Uh, and now we kind of start to see that same uh, inertia build between DevOps and the cloud-native serverless world as well. Now, if we step back a bit and think about adoption patterns in large enterprises, we see these same trends of tribalism as well. If you've ever attempted to get a large enterprise to adopt new technology, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. Entrenched groups that don't see the value of changing and how their own inertia is actually a hindrance to progress. Another bit that I appreciated for my interview with Simon was the idea of evolution and how things change their characteristics over time. In particular, his comment that as things approach a commodity state, patterns and practices will eventually be baked into the platform or in, into the technology itself. And then that allows us to begin to focus on higher level or higher order problems as the priority. So next I caught up with Chris Nova of Heptio. Chris is a longtime contributor to projects such as Kubernetes and Go, and she is the co-author of Cloud Native Infrastructure. Chris has been doing lots of research on what it takes to migrate stateful applications into Cloud Native platforms such as Kubernetes. Chris gets some good insights around how this move to Cloud Native has changed what problems we now need to solve in our enterprise infrastructure. So we're still at KubeCon. Uh, I have Chris Nova with me right now. Uh, Chris, uh, can you tell people what you do? Uh, in case they don't know who you are. Yeah, okay. <laughs> uh, so I guess the, the high level story of what I do is I try to take the infrastructure, DevOps layer, the operator layer of, of the stack um, and bring that to like cloud native enterprises. And, I've been doing that for like the past almost decade. Um, contributor to Kubernetes, I wrote a book called Cloud Native Infrastructure that kind of tells this story. Uh, I've contributed to Go, Terraform, I don't know. So a major contributor in the many communities. Yes. Uh, and kind of why I wanted to talk to you was your perspective on 
So now we've had this movement of DevOps, uh, enterprises trying to adopt DevOps, and now we have kind of the cloud native paradigms that enterprises are needing to kind of wrap their heads around. Yeah. And so what's kind of in your experience around uh, breaking through the inertia of yeah. enterprises? Oh man, so this I spend so much time focusing on this, like day to day at work. Um, so right now I've been doing a lot of like research around like what it takes to move like a large stateful application. Like let's just say, hi, I'm a company, I have this large Java application, it stores a ton of data, it's a state machine and, and you've been posting those videos online. Right. Yeah. And just doing the research around like what is the story of moving that to Kubernetes and cloud native? And then more importantly, like what works well, what doesn't work well, and like where do you kinda need to spend a little bit more time and get a little bit extra care along the mm -hmm. way. Um, so yeah, I, th I think the big things are like state is a huge, pro like not a huge problem, but it's just a, a new thing that you used to not have to worry about. Right. Um, and I think the other one is your applications before were engineered in such a way uh, that they would be like ran on a virtual machine and sort of stand alone and they can kind of take over the entire system. Mm -hmm. Cloud native is like a whole new paradigm. So the applications need to be sort of redesigned. So it's almost a reactive concept of redesigning your app or at least like trying to squeeze your square peg and around whole application into uh, this new cloud native way of doing things. Yeah, and especially when it comes to state and the redesign is you have to rip the state out of the application and usually put it into another component that's going to specifically handle that. Exactly, and so the big problem is, and if you watch my talk on this, uh, I talk about it, it's the, there's usually three layers of a state machine, which is the, uh, the user interface, what the humans interact with, uh, the data coupling layer, which actually ties uh, the top layer to the bottom layer, and then the third, the underlying data stores, and you know, MySQL server, whatever. Right. Um, traditionally, you see these layers coupled tightly together, whether it's the user interface and the data coupling layer or even the database, all three coupled together. And running in Kubernetes, running in a cloud native way, like makes that pretty challenging. Mm -hmm. So pulling those three layers apart and saying, yes, state is a new thing that needs to be managed, just like our application, and then it's going to take time is something engineers aren't used to doing, and I think that's where you see a lot of this friction. Right. Yeah. Um, what's your take on... Do you see enterprise adoption accelerating at the same rate that the community seems to be accelerating? So this conference has went from, the last two editions have quadrupled in size. So we're in Copenhagen, last year in Berlin it was 1,000, this year it's 4,000. Same yeah. thing with Austin. Uh, I mean, where there's smoke, there's fire, right? right? So I definitely think like the fact that we're seeing the conferences grow is a reflection of a really great conference as much as it's a reflection of the tech behind it. Mm -hmm. um, I think we still have a lot of work to do as far as getting things like state um, managed and giving, telling that story a little bit better. And then actually looking at all of the concrete use cases of how do I run my Java app in Kubernetes? How do right. I run my The actual app? use cases right. that people actually care about. Right, like I would, I would like love if I could see a blog that's like, Hi, I have like, let's say, like a, a tool like Magento, this mm -hmm. large stateful monolithic app that's like all object oriented and all of its goodness. And uh, here's what it was like for us to move that to Kubernetes and start to tell those stories. And I feel like that's sort of the next big thing that we need to, to solve as a community. Mm -hmm. And I think once we start solving those problems and we get those examples out there and people are seeing it, I think we're going to see enterprise adoption skyrocket. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Chris, thank you for your time. I appreciate you uh, talking to us. Sure. Uh, and enjoy the rest of your conference. Rad. Chris gives us some good insight as to what the challenges are to overcoming that inertia of the enterprise. 
And her point on uh, having real-world examples as being a key to seeing enterprise adoption of cloud-native really take off is something that we've seen before in the world of DevOps. So create a small team to change your practices, document those benefits, and use that as the basis going forward to break this cycle of inertia. We've talked about this before in season one of the Goat Farm, uh, episode two, when we had Target on, and this idea that they had uh, around building what was called the DevOps Dojo. Another bit that Chris tangentially mentions is this idea of patterns and practices being built into the platform. So cloud-native platforms are great for running stateless applications, and now that we have that problem solved, quote-unquote, uh, that allows us to focus on applications that are tightly coupled to state, which is the area that Chris has been focusing on. So the last individual I caught up with at KubeCon EU was Sebastian Goesen. Sebastian has been active in the Kubernetes community for a number of years and is currently a maintainer of Kubeless, an open source project that allows you to easily create a functions as a service offering on top, on top of Kubernetes. I wanted to learn from Sebastian more about this idea of baking practice into the platform and why he thinks that's so powerful. So I'm here with uh, Sebastian. Sebastian, I apologize, I can never say your last name correctly. Go Asgen. Go Asgen. Yeah, there you go. Yes, perfect. <laughs> uh, so you gave a talk today on uh, uh, serverless and securing serverless. So maybe you can just give us a little brief overview of what you talked about. Sure, yeah. So we're here at KubeCon. There was a, an entire track on, uh, on serverless and uh, how you can enable serverless uh, on top of Kubernetes. And I wanted to give an advanced talk on how you secure uh, serverless functions and how you benefit from a lot of uh, you know, what comes out of the box in Kubernetes uh, to be able to, to secure serverless and you know, therefore getting you know, less friction if you're deciding to not only embrace Kubernetes but then also move to uh, functions. So how do you find um, a, the adoption curve of serverless looking right now? It seems like it's definitely picking up from a hype perspective, but the main thing that kind of causes drag in an organization is not understanding it or uh, challenges of just general inertia. So how is it different this time around than yeah. when we used to work together in the CloudStack community? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, you know, I, I'm, I'm like you. When I look at new technologies, I'm, I'm always careful, you know, is this just a new hype or things like this? So uh, a year and a half ago, what I did is I went to JeffConf in, uh, in London, and uh, it was, you know, serverless put, uh, conference put together by the serverless community in, in London, and I was uh, really struck when I went there. I realized that there were users in production mm -hmm. on AWS Lambda and doing real things. It's not just like, uh, you know, hello world and testing right. things. So they are really putting new apps in prod right now on Lambda. So if people are really embracing this new paradigm of deploying application with small functions, we should be able to enable that, that, that exact paradigm on-prem using a system like Kubeless. Okay. And of course, then you have questions about security and, mm -hmm. you know, how do you make sure that, you know, a function is not going to go rogue and things like this. That's where you and I worked on, uh, on Falco. So, you know, definitely people are adopting serverless. We are enabling that new paradigm on-prem, building on top of Kubernetes. And, uh, and we're going to see people move, you know, a little bit more easily towards that, uh, those principles. So one of the things that would slow down an organization is those aspects of security. So how do you think we've done things a little bit differently this time around and as we move organizations towards cloud native to where 
security is baked into the platform so that people feel safer in moving it. Yeah. Yeah, so we're here at KubeCon. Uh, you know, one of the reasons why Kubernetes is so amazing is that you can extend it uh, with this concept of custom resource definitions. So, you know, KubeLess that allows you to, that I've built, that allows you to, to deploy functions is an extension of Kubernetes. So when you, when you try to deploy a function, you authenticate using the Kubernetes authentication mechanism. You have role-based access control using Kubernetes. You can minimize the, uh, you know, the, uh, the blast radius of a, a rogue function using pod security contacts, using network policies, and so on. So everything that Kubernetes gives you, the plat that Kubernetes platform gives you, you can leverage it to release secure functions. So you're not building out of nothing. Yeah, and that's that's interesting is that um, the way Kubernetes has been designed to have this idea of extensible APIs. Yep. Uh, and typically what we would do in the past is we would just, everyone would build their own platform. Everyone would build their authentication. Yep. Everyone would build those components that you need to actually go and run the code in a secure manner. And now that's all been consolidated in one place because we've defined a paradigm around that, yep. which I think it makes it a lot more powerful from that perspective. Uh, what do you think some of the challenges are left in the security space, and, and especially when it comes to serverless and security? Oh, I mean, this, you know, it's still just the beginning. So, you know, I said it's not, it's not, it's not a hype. You know, there are definitely people using, using serverless, but definitely, I mean, there's always going to be challenges in security. So that's, you know, it's pretty tough. But what you're seeing in Kubernetes is that there are lots of uh, extension points and, and, you know, almost knobs that you, can, that you can tweak to add security concerns. You can do automatic scanning of uh, runtimes. You can do audit. You know, of course, logging is, uh, you know, is, is built in there if you do something like 3MD and so on. So the entire point, I think, is that a, uh, an enterprise that adopts Kubernetes to be able to go cloud native, uh, you know, once they learn the way to operate their application in a cloud native way, they will, they'll be able to reuse the same operational uh, principles and that expertise if they move, uh, keep on moving and get, and get serverless. But... You know, things like Istio, also yeah, service mesh, you know, principles, they add another layer in terms of, uh, of security. But that's probably, you know, still early. So we need to be careful in not, you know, putting the cart in front of the horses or whatever. <laughs> cart in front of the horse. Yeah, cart in front of the horse. There <laughs> yeah. you go. Yeah. Well, Sebastian, it's been good talking to you as always. Uh, always appreciate uh, your insights, uh, and it's been a good week out here in Copenhagen. So yep. thank you again. Thanks. Sebastian really brings home this idea of the platform helping to break through the inertia of the organization. Sure, there still will be challenges that we face, but as we look towards the future and how enterprises will adapt to this change, it's important to realize how the set of problems we need to solve evolve as well. As the concept of a platform that incorporates best practices becomes more commonplace, the things that we are concerned about in regards to DevOps changes as well. Things like configuration management and infrastructure as code, which uh, have been two mainstays of DevOps over the last several years, start to become more transparent. Our focus can then shift to other problems we need to solve to increase velocity, such as how we manage stateful applications. 
And this, of course, all begins to make sense because if you go back to the principles of DevOps that focus on lean and removing waste from a process, we've removed that waste by baking these ideas into the platform, and now we need to go focus on the next bottleneck that would allow us to increase velocity. So we're already seeing this with not only the work people like Chris Nova are doing, but with through things like custom resources or operators in the world of Kubernetes. Uh, also the open service broker. Both of these concepts seek to standardize how developers can request and stand up services quickly, and thus helps us begin to focus on reducing that time to value for a developer and increasing that developer velocity uh, as much as possible. So that about does it for our second episode of season two. Uh, coming up, I'll be at the JFrog conference Swamp Up, and later I'll be headed over to Australia for Can Container Camp AU. As technology adoption is never evenly distributed throughout the world, and of course I realize this as I live in the Midwest and visit the East and West Coasts uh, very often and see how they're uh, a little bit more advanced from time to time. Uh, I'm really excited to see how Cloud Native has started to catch on in the tech world of Australia. I'll also be at DockerCon in June in San Francisco, as well as DevOps Days Amsterdam, which is also happening in June. If you see me at one of these shows, I'd love to chat with you more about how your organization is overcoming inertia and moving into the world of cloud data. Until next time.